a psalm of David, a prayer for cleansing and pardon. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner, when my mother conceived me. You desire truth in the inward being. Therefore, teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O Lord, and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain in me a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from bloodshed, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your deliverance. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you have no delight in sacrifice. If I were to give a burnt offering, you would not be pleased. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered. survived the uh, snow in November. It's quite a coming down. I was here at the church office as it was snowing and I looked out and I thought, oh, that's pretty. Uh, it doesn't look like it's that bad. And then I finally got in my car after the kids' school had been released early and I started to see more warnings coming on my phone and everything. And I thought, oh, it can't be that bad. It took me, yeah, I think like 45 minutes to get home others hours to get my home. My brother uh, works in Harrisburg and lives in Jonestown. I think it took him two hours to get home. He had some other friends that live in York County, I think, that uh, took them like eight hours to get home. So it was quite something to receive all that snow. Uh, so I'm glad that everyone was safe through that. This morning we are continuing our series looking at worship together. Uh, last week we talked about worship as sacrifice and worship as our response to what God has done in each of our lives and how we come together in worship. 
This morning we're going to focus on how that worship, coming together, just in awe of God, retelling the story of what God has done in each of our lives, how that forms each one of us to be in partnership with God and to go from this place and serve with God in mission. As we come this morning, would you pray with me? Holy God, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you. I ask that you would speak to us this morning through me or despite me. In Jesus' name, amen. The New Testament church had three things that kind of defined their church experience, their community experience. Three things. The first one, that, and they used Greek words, so we're going to learn a little Greek this morning. The first one is liturgia, which we get our word liturgy from, liturgy. And liturgy literally means the work of the people. It was meant as public worship, corporate worship, coming together to retell the story of God. Today, liturgy is often about the pattern that we follow in worship. And for some people, they see liturgy as a rut. The same old rut we come to week in and week out. I think it's really unfortunate to see liturgy as the same old rut. For some of us, it is the well-worn path to coming and to experiencing worship. A path that people have tread time and time again through the centuries, and we retrace those steps as we come to worship. There can be something life-giving in following that well-worn path. A few of uh, my friends here at Spring Creek helped build this uh, box thing with the candles the other week. And I want to tell you a little bit of where that inspiration comes from. Uh, David Myers and uh, Brenda and Bob Etter and I think maybe some others helped put that together for me. Uh, it come, it's based on some of the items that are used in worship in Tizay, France. And in Tizay, France, there is an ecumenical monastery where brothers come together uh, bringing together different Christian traditions, different Christian songs, prayers, symbols, and people. They may sing with a guitar during their worship, or they may listen as the brothers uh, enter into Gregorian chant. Very different forms of worship. They uh, worship in, in different languages, and each year, thousands of young adults make a pilgrimage to Tizay to experience the well-worn path of liturgical worship. And this is something that they use in their worship. Um, it represents the Spirit coming, the Spirit alive and active in this place as we think of flame of the Spirit coming and resting on the disciples. The other words that define the early Christian community was koinonia, and 
often this is translated as fellowship. But it means more than just coming together once a week. It means more than uh, a fellowship meal that we share with one another on rare occasions. Koinonia is about intimate community. It is about coming and sharing life together, sharing one another's burdens, walking with each other through the hard stuff of life. This is what koinonia means. The last word they used to define their community was diakonia. We get our word deacon. It means to serve. It is partnering with God in mission of God to the world. In the book Dwell, Life with God for the World, Barry Jones writes, Our breathing in, in worship, comes both as response to and preparation for our breathing out in mission. We come to worship to breathe in the Spirit of God, to be present with God, to come in awe of God so that we might go from this place and breathe out the name of Jesus, breathe out in mission. And so our worship transforms us you have your Bibles, uh, you can be turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. If you don't have your own or you don't have an app, there's a few Bibles. I encourage you to, to flip there. 2 Corinthians. Paul writes in a number of places about worship that transforms us. Coming and experiencing God leaves us as different kind of people. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 looking at verses 12 to 18. Paul writes, Since then we have such a hope, we act with great boldness, not like Moses who put a veil over his face to keep the people of Israel from gazing at the end of the glory that was being set aside. But their minds were hardened. Indeed, to this very day, when they hear the reading of the Old Covenant, that same veil is still there, since only in Christ is it set aside. Indeed, to this very day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their minds. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And all of us with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. See, through Jesus, the curtain that separated the people in the temple, that separated the people from the holy place and the most holy place, where, where God resided. When Jesus died, that curtain was torn. That dividing line between us and God was torn apart. No longer did worship have to be mediated through sacrifices or the priest or the pastor. In worship, whether it's our own worship or our worship together here on Sunday mornings, we are brought into the presence of God. And seeing the glory of God transforms us more and more into the image of God. In your Bibles, turn a couple books prior to 2 Corinthians to Romans. Romans chapter 12. Last week I read verse 1, and we focused on verse 1 that talks about offering ourselves as living sacrifices. This is your spiritual act of worship. 
Romans chapter 12. Verse 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is what we focused on last week. Worship as an act of sacrifice. But then look at what Paul writes then in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, Paul writes that we are not to conform to the way we see the world living, the way the church treats one another, the way the church treats others shouldn't look like politicians arguing. It shouldn't look like people setting up these walls between one another. It should look different. We should be transformed in order that we might come to know the mind of Christ. Living a life of worship is about coming into contact with the divine, encountering the risen Christ, and allowing that interaction to change, to transform who we are. And there's a number of ways in which worship changes or transforms who we are. Worship redefines our identity. As we come to understand our brokenness, we also begin to see how we are forgiven and accepted, claimed as sons and daughters of the King, and it redefines our identity. Worship also reorders our affections. The more time we spend with Jesus, the more time we spend basking in the presence and the love of God, the more we come to love the things God loves, to love the people that God loves. Worship reorders our affections. Worship also repatterns our imagination. When we spend time admiring the Creator, we begin to get creative. We imagine new ways of living. We imagine new possibilities. Our minds are formed around the one we worship to imagine what we could be like, what our church could be like, what our community could be like, what our world could be like. As we come to worship, we begin to imagine new ways of being in relationship with God. Worship also reorients our life in the world. It changes the way we live. At least that's what worship is supposed to do. We're supposed to come to experience God and then leave as different kinds of people and to live in different ways. Worship isn't about checking off your box and you got that done for your week and now you go about life the same way. Come to experience God and to be transformed and then to go and to live differently. Richard Foster in his book Celebration of Discipline writes, to stand before the Holy One of eternity is to change. 
what are we supposed to be doing in worship? Our scripture this morning was taken out of Psalm 51. And I think David helps us to see some of the parts of worship that should be involved every morning beyond the kinds of songs we sing. The first thing that you see in Psalm 51 is David's confession. David gives us a glimpse of worship that begins with confession and repentance, and that's what we did this morning. We confessed our brokenness. We confessed that our world is not right. We confessed that we are in need of a Savior. And that's what in the first uh, five verses of Psalm 51, David is confessing that he has sinned. And he asks for mercy. He asks for his transgressions to be blotted out. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He talks about his transgression always being in front of him, that that he can't get away from it. He acknowledges that he is sinful from birth, that that he has never had a time in his life where he hasn't had this, this brokenness, this separation from God. So we need to come confessing our sin. We also gather in worship to rehearse our story. David retells his story. Again, that he's never been without sin. Uh, The kind of prescript of this psalm says that this comes when the prophet Nathan came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. This is a response to a story, a very broken story in David's life. David is known as a man after God's own heart, and yet he seems to fall into this this pride, thinking he's the king and he can have whatever he wants. He fails. He messes up, as we all do. David retells his story. And yet he wants to be transformed. If you look at verse 6, it says, You desire truth in the inward being. Therefore, teach me wisdom in my secret heart. He wants to be transformed. He wants to have God's truth in his heart. In worship, we come to retell the story of the king and his kingdom. We rehearse it every week so that we're reminded of what God has done and is doing in the world. And the more we rehearse this story, the more it becomes a part of who we are. When I was in high school, I did musicals. I think we did uh, HMS Pinafore, which is an old, it was a remake of an old Gilbert and Sullivan musical. We did uh, Guys and Dolls. I loved doing that one. We did Annie. I got to be Daddy Warbucks and wear the bald cap and that was fun. And then we did uh, a musical called The Scarlet Pimpernel, which is kind of poor man's Les Miserables uh, story. And I would go to these rehearsals month after month and you start with the script in hand and you start with uh, the music right in front of you and it got to the choreography stuff and you had to walk through steps very slowly. Day after day, as you rehearsed, as you practiced, it became just second nature. And if somebody launched into a line and 
the middle of a scene, I could usually follow up. I, I, that conversation, those, that dialogue just became second nature. And I didn't have to look at the music anymore, and I, had, I could stop watching the person next to me to see if I was doing all the steps correctly. Dancing wasn't the best part of what I did. As we come to rehearse the story of God, as we gather week in and week out to worship, that story starts to become a part of who we are. We don't have to keep looking at the music. We don't have to keep looking at the dialogue. It becomes a part of the way we live. It becomes second nature as we rehearse that story day in and day out, week in and week out. We also come to worship to hear God's word. David knows that God wants him to be filled with God's truth. We come to hear God's word, the story, the instructions, the teachings of what it means to be in relationship with God as disciples of Jesus. We also come to share God's table. If you look at verse 12, it says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain in me a willing spirit. He longs to experience that saving power of God. This is what sharing God's table is about, being reminded of the salvation that Jesus brings. In the broader church, uh, sometimes this sharing God's table is done in Eucharist or communion every week. At Spring Creek, we choose to do that a few times a year so it doesn't become something too uh, routine, that it's not just something done because that's what we do every week. We want to remember this special sacrifice that leads to our salvation. But each week we do gather together in community to be reminded of what God has done for us. We gather to be reminded of the life and the death for our sins, the resurrection, the ascension, and the anticipated return of Jesus. Then we also gather in worship to be sent on God's mission. Verse 13, David says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from bloodshed, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud your deliverance. He talks about the future of Jerusalem, the future of Zion, as he says, the restoration of these sacrifices. This is God's mission that David wants to be a part of. We are called to go and to partner with God on God's mission. It's not doing the building of God's kingdom. We don't just do the building of God's kingdom by ourselves. We don't go out and do God's mission on our own. But we are to become partners more and more in tune with who God is and what God is doing in the world. And we go to do this mission with God together because God has chosen his representative on earth now to be the body of Christ in the church. 
this body that comes to worship, to join together in intimate community, then goes to serve. One of the people I asked about worship was uh, Dick Heiler. And in talking about why we worship, he said it allows God's Holy Spirit to affect my personal life and result in outreach to others who are without Christ. This is what formative worship is all about, coming together to do the work of the people, which is to worship God and to allow that experience of God, that joining together with the body to form us for mission with God. Everyone that I asked about worship talked about how worship changes, transforms, or prepares them, or challenges them to live differently. Worship is about transformation. When we really come to worship, worship can become what Mark Laberton calls dangerous. We're going to take a look at a video about why he calls real worship dangerous. 